0: Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Afternoon, folks. This is the Am I Called podcast, and I'm your host, Dave Harvey. And today's guest, Carl Truman, is Skyping in from Philadelphia, which I think right now is buried in about 30 plus inches of snow that came this past weekend. Uh, by the way, sunny and 73 down here in Tallahassee. Um, there's just not enough time to mention all of the ways that Carl Truman serves the body of Christ. He's a, he's a theologian. Carl is a church historian. He's In fact, he's the professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also a prolific writer who has authored many books and edits several different theological journals. He blogs regularly at Reformation 21, co-hosts a podcast, but, and also, despite all of that fruitful busyness, Carl was also a pastor. He, He pastors Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, which is in Ambler, Pennsylvania, just outside of, of Philadelphia. So Carl, thanks so much for making the time to join us today.
1: That's a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Now, Carl, according to your bio, you were born in Dudley, which we were just talking before we get started here, is in the Midlands of England, and and you were converted around 17. And uh, what one of the prominent features of your life seems to be this, this Evident call to scholarship. I mean, you're, you're the professor of historical theology at, at Westminster. But then also you have a, a corresponding call to the church because you're a pastor at Cornerstone. Could, so could you talk a little bit about how the call to scholarship took shape and, and how the church became located in the center of that or, or the scholarship got located in the center of the church? Just talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a very unmystical, practical, pragmatic kind of person. So I'm afraid it, the story has no spectacular spirituality to it. I did my PhD. I was training to be an academic. I had a job at the University of Nottingham and I then moved to the University of Aberdeen in the, the late 1990s. I was committed to being a professional scholar professional academic always been a churchman since I was converted always felt that whatever job I did Monday to Friday I should be involved in in the local church uh, on certainly on a Sunday and helping during the week as and as and when possible uh, so Westminster actually approached me in I think it was around about the year 2000 uh, with a, an opening and asked if I'd be interested in in transferring across to the US and teaching at seminary it seemed like an attractive op- proposition it allowed me to teach what i loved uh, and to teach more of what i loved um, so i took the the call to to westminster because it was bottom line an attractive attractive job offer uh, the call to the church emerged really over the next the next decade when i was Obviously, my wife and I were members of a local church. I was working uh, at Westminster and involved in the life of the local church as much as possible. Round about the year 2009-2010, the congregation we were involved in took a heavy financial hit with the the economic downturn, had to let the the full-time pastor go. And it became patently obvious that the church would only survive with, if somebody was willing to take the task on, part-time. And I happened to be the man in place at the time mm-hmm. as I was doing most of the preaching at that point anyway with the the passing of the previous pastor uh, I threw my hat into the ring and said look I'd be willing to do this this part-time I think it's appropriate that it's a salary position even if it's not a great salary because people should be invested in the ministry of the word in the, in the place they are and that's how I became the I say the part-time, full-time pastor of, of the church where I am. No voice calling me from the sky, no mystical vision or anything. It was a, a question of, of a need that needed to be filled and uh, of me having some of the skills that, that would enable that need to be filled.
0: Which is probably more, more typical of how, how calling happens. And, uh, you know, it's funny, you talk about being a churchman. I, I, uh, I was thinking about, um, Reichen has just written this book on J.I. Packer, and I know you've thought a lot and, and studied a lot about Packer, and he has this line about Packer's conversion that says something about how how once he was converted, that that the idea of being called to, to ministry kind of gradually I think he said, "Seize the sovereignty of his mind," and uh, and there was the sense that he knew he was called to be a scholar, uh, and and he describes himself as being kind of shy and introverted, but he still moved towards the church. And I, you know, as you talk about being a, a churchman, is is there a sense where in the UK or in England, in particular, that 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 was those two things always? seemed to go together, at least in the first half of the century, or is there, there was, was there something about Packer's theology that located the church in the center of what he should be doing, or near the center of what he should be doing?
1: Uh, I think that certainly in the UK, when I was converted, the the idea of not being involved deeply in the local church was not an option. All the churches, both Baptist and Presbyterian, I was involved in in the UK put a high premium on being involved actively in the local church so that certainly was part of the the evangelical culture uh, in which I found myself after after conversion um, I, I think the if, if I had a criticism of, of, of UK culture perhaps sometimes it doesn't put a high enough premium on the ministry as a distinctive calling if I could put it that way Everybody is expected to be involved in the local church. But the idea of the ministry as a distinctive calling has perhaps not been as accented as it might have been over the years. There's a certain democraticness, certainly to the free evangelicalism that I was involved in, uh, where, where the call to the ministry may not have been, been something uh, considered particularly special.
0: And when you use the word distinctive, Carl, what, what distinguishes it in your mind?
1: I think that the the call to to ministry, I mean, Paul in his pastoral epistles makes it very clear that uh, to hold a position of of rule and of teaching in the church, it's more than just being able to, to teach well. And it's not something that is, is open to everyone. The humblest believer is a member of the church. But in order to be an elder, in order to, to be involved in the teaching ministry of the church, certain other things need to be in place as well. And as Paul lists them, they are primarily what I would describe as, as moral qualities. There are certain other characteristics there. But the, the call to the elder is not the same as the call to be a Christian. We're all called to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all are then called to hold position of of rule, authority, teaching within the church.
0: And and the moral, well, in in some ways, I guess the, the moral distinctions, the character requirements, the, though true of all believers and all believers have a call to that, there is some sense where the one called to elder has to, distinguish himself in that area or at least be an example in that area
1: yes absolutely I think elders are in in many ways the public face of the church both to the world outside and to the congregation within and therefore it seems to me what Paul is doing Uh, At least one of the things he's doing when he sets forth the criteria for eldership is elders are to represent in their life and their teaching and their testimony that to which all believers should aspire. They're to be role models in all of these different areas, whether it's the way they deal with their wives, the way they manage their households, uh, the way they handle alcohol. All of these things are, are... Significant for whether a man should should hold position uh, as an elder, and I think that 's because elders are meant to be aspirational role models
0: now, one of the things that you do at Westminster is in a sense, train men who will be elders or who already feel called to eldership, and you 've undoubtedly seen many types of men come through the door over the years and you know why don 't you think out loud a little bit, Carl about the men that you've seen trained at Westminster over the last decade or so, and those that are serving fruitfully today, um, what do you think are some of the things that has contributed to their longevity in ministry? And, and maybe even talk about how the seminary contributed to that.
1: Yeah, well, I think the first thing to to realize is that, that seminaries impart part on the whole a set of technical skills whether we're talking about historical skills, linguistic skills, exegetical skills so the seminary is really focused on, the, uh, on, a, on a fairly narrow range of qualifications for uh, being an elder in the church The primary character, Christian character traits, these are things that are cultivated in in the family and in the church by and large. So first thing I'd want to do in answering the question is to say that the seminary plays a limited role in establishing uh, a man's call to to ministry. And the seminary imparts certain skills that the person needs to have, but isn't shaping everything that needs to be in place for, for ministry. I would say looking at the guys coming through seminary in my time, um, it tends to be the, the guys who come in older, perhaps those who already got families, uh, who are often the most successful ministerial candidates in terms of being students and then going on to serve in churches because they have a level of maturity that's often lacking in guys just coming straight out of university. Mm-hmm. One, of the thing, one of the things I say to students is you know, when particularly those who've just come from college or university the Semrius, when you get your MD you don't have to be looking for a call to the ministry straight away. You can get a job, you can go and serve in a local congregation as a church member, taking out the trash, teaching Sunday school. There are a variety of things you can do while you you wait for a church to recognize that you have the, the necessary qualifications, the necessary maturity to, to be a, a pastor or and, an elder. And,
0: and how does that benefit a man, Carl?
1: I was just chatting to somebody earlier today saying that I think the, the two things when I look back that have been most helpful to me in my, my later life uh, ministry-wise were, well, one, the fact that when I got my Ph.D. and went out and just joined a church, they didn't actually give me any position, any responsibility for years. I just had to serve like any other guy who had a job Monday to Friday in whatever humble capacity the church pointed me to. And I was happy to do that. And The second thing was, um, later on, my sole role in the church, other than taking out the trash, was assisting my wife, teaching the the five-year-old Sunday school. And I, I look back on those years and think, couple of things that i learned there that were important to learn and one is that the world is not just desperate for me to go out and take a call the world (laughs) runs quite happily without me secondly as a pastor now i'm a part-time pastor i don't get paid a lot for the pastoring i do but i do get paid most people at my church who work very hard for my church they don't get paid at all and it's very useful to understand what that means It makes you much more appreciative and grateful, I think, for the people. The people who do the music, the people who clean up after the service, the people who print the bulletin sheets. These are people who are not getting paid to do this stuff. And I think it's very important for pastors to understand that the church operates because a lot of people give of their time very sacrificially for no public acknowledgement or glory, even within the congregation itself.
0: Yeah I'm I'm in an environment now where there are lay elders um having come out of a of a culture where most of the elders were paid um and and both models have have certain benefits to them but one of the things that that I've noticed is that the lay eldership model and the one that I'm enjoying right now it you do have those men around you that are far more in touch with just what it's like to be serving in the church without compensation and uh and and doing it for a whole different set of reasons similar in many ways but but without the without the compensation factor
1: yeah i get very annoyed about ministers and pastors who whine about how tough their lot is. And I know there are pastors out there, full-time pastors probably earning less than I'm getting as a part-time pastor. There are pastors out there for whom life is very hard, but there are others who just complain about it all the time. And when I look at my congregation, I think almost everybody in my congregation has a tougher life Monday to Friday than I have. Most of them are in very hostile workplaces. I have the luxury of teaching at the seminary during the week, it's not particularly hostile, and then preaching the gospel I love at the weekends. That's a pretty good deal, to be honest. And, and I find the, the idea that, that men who have been protected from the world to some extent complain about their calling all the time, it's, it's just very annoying, I have to say.
0: Do you think there's a <laughs> – uh, is there a, a vulnerability that a, a, a man in ministry would have uh, that he would be more prone to spiritual attacks that have to be taken into account there?
1: I think so. I, I think, uh, obviously, if, if you're going to bring the church down, the people you want to go after are the public face of the church, the leadership of the church. So it would seem to me that if we do live as we do in, in a universe that's subject to supernatural spiritual conflict, the elders and the ministers are going to be peculiar targets of, of attack. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, and that attack can come in many forms. It can come externally. We're all aware of, of sexual temptations and financial temptations. And it can come internally in terms of self-pity, despair, bitterness of soul, cynicism. Uh, but certainly, I think uh, elders and ministers are obviously walking around with great big targets on their back. Congregations, of course, should should pray regularly for their pastors and ministers, that they will be protected from these things.
0: Carl, you mentioned uh, being annoyed by by whining pastors i I know something else that has has annoyed you has been the existence of the celebrity pastor culture within in particular the united states although i think we would agree that it's not confined to the united states it certainly is manifested somewhat uniquely there why don't you carl just take a few minutes and and help an american pastor who's listening uh, discern their own culture so in, in what ways is the american culture particularly vulnerable to celebrity pastors and uh, how do we resist those impulses
1: yeah i think one of the one of the hallmarks of american culture and it may not be unique to america uh, but it certainly distinguishes it somewhat i think from 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 britain and from western europe is is the confidence that's often put in in the great man or on occasion the great woman even the political system reflects that and you have the you know, the president of the united states is a i'm not talking theologically here but he's, like, he's a charismatic figure and people invest in a huge amount in in particular individuals that's kind of exacerbated fueled at the popular level by by hollywood where film stars carry huge cachet i think in the in the church world that the danger we have to be careful of is is allowing that to spill over into a situation where we invest too much authority in any any given individual. I mean, one of the pushbacks I often get when I go off on my anti-celebrity rants. And by the way, there are many things that annoy me, not just this. Great thing about being the OPC is I can be annoyed about a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, what well, one of the pushbacks I get is, "Yeah, but you're a celebrity. You're, you're the anti-celebrity celebrity." I, I'm using celebrity when I when I sort of rant against celebrity culture in to mean more than just well-known. I mean men in whom people invest peculiar authority not because of the position they occupy within an institutional church structure uh, and to which they would therefore be accountable, but men who've had huge authority invested in them simply because of who they are. And we could all name names And, and not all of these men have sought this you know the problem isn't always with the celebrity guy sometimes the problem is with the celebrity fanboys who invest the authority in this man even though he doesn't want it invested there Um, mark driscoll would be a great example of of this in that at the end of the day what happened at mars hill indicated that the church was really him it was rooted in his personality it was rooted in his books. It was rooted in his personal charisma. How do we avoid this as pastors? Well, I think on one level, if you are a pastor with a public profile, and every pastor has a public profile, it may be a small one, it could be a larger one, one has to, be, one has to do a few things. One, make sure that one does not develop a culture of false intimacy with people you don't even know. It drives me crazy when pastors have these chatty Twitter feeds that allow people who don't know them to think they're close friends. That, to me, is part of the celebrity culture. I think every pastor needs to make sure he's accountable to people who do know him. Um, You're not accountable to your Twitter followers. You're accountable to your elders. You're accountable to your congregation. You're accountable to your presbytery. Live in a manner that indicates that that's the case. Um, Thirdly, I think be very, very careful about how you market yourself and how you allow other people to market you. It's a fine line between getting your message out and getting you out there, if I could put it that way. And the line may be drawn in different places for different people. But I think being very self-conscious about how we present ourselves to the public is, is critical.
0: So the, the fundamental issue goes more to the motive and the intent of the man, the, the main difference between the British culture and the American culture is that fa- the fan base would be more oriented to follow over here. Is that, am I understanding you correctly?
1: I would say oriented to follow different things. And, and, and British sport is a good, it makes a nice contrast here. You can make the, the cultural comparison using sport. I'm struck how in America so often the focus is on Individuals within the team, the big-name quarterback or the big-name basketball player is kind of bigger than the team he plays for often. In the UK, with the exception of David Beckham, who was something of an anomaly, you follow the team. No player is more famous than the team. Uh, if, if, If the British have a problem, it's we place too much confidence in institutions. We can make our institutions, whether it's the BBC or the National Health Service or our sports team, we can make them into our celebrities. Over here, it's rooted much more in the man, in the big personality. And I think that's potentially more dangerous for the church than putting one's confidence in an institution. So the, Spurgeon,
0: church- the Spurgeons and the Whitfields would be more outliers in that construct.
1: I would say so and you know Whitfield's an interesting example because in some ways he was a celebrity. He he wrote these journals that were meant for publication. He cultivated his public image in a way that frankly I'd say that's not appropriate. You know Whitfield was a great man and a great preacher, but he did things I think that that puffed his cause more than they puffed the gospel at points. I know it's heresy to say that in an evangelical environment, but Whitfield was a he was a big self-promoter. Spurgeon less so. I think Spurgeon had greatness thrust upon him less than he cultivated it for himself. But Whitfield, he knew how to use the press. There was a reason why the press were always there when he was excluded from a pulpit. Whitfield had probably tipped him off that he was going to be excluded from the pulpit.
0: <laughs> yeah, there does, some, there does seem to be something that's just endemic to, um, uh, to America. Something of the, I don't know if it's the you know, the, what, what, what we might call as Americans, the, the rugged individualism that's kind of part of our inception, throwing off the tyranny of Britain. Yeah. Uh, no offense intended. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just that, that rugged individualism that's, yeah. that's now in our DNA so that we yeah. celebrate the, the, the standalone leader. Yeah. And that's more important to us than the team.
1: Yeah. And again, I would, I would make a comment and say that's not entirely a bad thing. Often what one finds in church history is that a man's strengths are also his weaknesses and vice versa. Martin Luther is a great example. If he'd not been ultimately a bull-headed individualist, he would not have been able to take the heat that was coming his way in the 1520s. There would be no reformation. On the other hand, it was Luther's bullheadedness that made him a disaster at points as well. So uh, please don't, Read what I'm saying as a criticism of American rugged individualism. It's what I'm saying is there are strengths here, but there are also vulnerabilities, and it's being aware of those vulnerabilities that probably helps us to compensate for them.
0: Is there a, is there a strong side to the celebrity culture then? And and maybe even another another question to think about would be: Are, are you seeing Positive developments within the celebrity culture phenomenon since the, the critique began a number of years, what, five or six years back?
1: Yeah. Well, I think on the whole, my critique's been roundly ignored, and now I'm not actually referenced on any <laughs> blog. Or so they certainly, the has certainly dealt with my potential celebrity fairly decisively, I think. But, you know, joking aside, I think um, one of the good things that come out of it is people read good stuff because certain people write it. I'm under no illusions, you know, if I write a book, you know, maybe 500 people are gonna read it. If John Piper writes a book, 50,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 people are gonna read it. So it's good to have celebrities who are writing good stuff, have them writing books, it gets the message out there. So certainly the, the exposure that the celebrity culture has given to good teaching is a good thing, the trick that we got to try to pull off is making sure that the it's the good teaching that people get their teeth into and focus on and not ultimately the man who is who is promoting it
0: one of the things I'm encouraged by is that I I I'm hearing more and reading more material that is kind of celebrating the the simple life of of pastoring outside of the spotlight um, in the mundane you know I think about uh, carson's book on his father uh about being an ordinary pastor and and uh and and then zach Swine is writing stuff now mm. where you know just this idea of being being a pastor is enough yeah and i'm hearing that more and i wonder in some ways if that isn't fruit from some of the critique that's going on of the celebrity pastor culture
1: it it could be and it's certainly important because Bottom line, most of the guys I teach at Westminster who go out into the pastoral ministry, their experience is going to be closer to that of D.A. Carson's father than it is to that of Tim Keller or John Piper. Uh, It's not going to be exactly the same, but they're going to be working away in a congregation of 50, 100, maybe 150 people. Uh, they're not going to be ministering to to thousands or tens of thousands so I think it's it is a very good thing and it may be something of a gentle reaction uh, as I've my colleague Tim Whitmer wrote this book uh, The Shepherd Leader a couple of years ago that became something of an unexpected hit and students were asking me why and I said well you know it's because when Tim writes a book about what pastoring's like for him it's actually more like what pastoring's going to be like for you when John Piper writes a book on pastoring, it can be a really good book but everybody knows. John Piper has three or four personal assistants, he's got numerous pa- you know, His experience of the pastorate is simply not going to be uh, what yours is going to be and for all of his great learning he's not going to speak to the ordinary pastor issue with the same personal authority as an ordinary pastor would or in D.A. Carson's case as the son of an ordinary pastor does.
0: sure i'm glad that whitmer's book is circulating the way that it is that's a great help to us all
1: yeah
0: carl let me uh let me switch things up on you a little bit in fact i'll I'll make this my my final question and it just has to do with uh politics because you wrote a book on u.s politics (laughs) called republicrat or republicrats and uh and and let me won me a lot of friends in conservative I'm sure it evangelical did.
1: circles <laughs> and
0: and their their folks found it helpful but I I'm just trying to think like you know here we are in a year of a presidential election and and why don't you imagine for a second that you're sitting in a room with with a dozen or so pastors how would you encourage them to be thinking in a clear way yeah. about this year's election
1: well it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare really isn't it a Is it a country of 300 million people and it's coming down to Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? (laughs) It's not a great selection. Uh, I think a couple of things. One, I would, in terms of the specifics of what's going on at the moment, uh, if I could put it this way, I think it's the religious freedom issue is so critical and the, the sexual politics issues are so critical. It's they could well be the the decisive issues in how one votes this year, just as a citizen of the United States. If you're a Christian and you're a citizen of the United States, you're going to be concerned about religious freedom. You're going to be concerned about the way the gay issue and the transgender issue are playing out in the law courts. I really do think that that could be a decisive factor in how one votes this year. In general terms, though, I would have to say it's important to remember that What we've enjoyed in the west for the last 1500 years which has been by and large the cultural dominance of christianity that may be historically the norm but if you read the new testament (coughs) theologically that would seem to be the exception paul does not seem to expect that the church will be dominant in culture that's certainly not what he's drawing out of uh, first and second corinthians for example Uh, so i would encourage pastors by saying you know politics is one thing and it's important that you vote and that your congregation fulfill their civic duties and vote as individuals but let's keep our eye on the bigger picture here uh, the church has faced worst and survived uh, what we've experienced and what we continue to experience for s- to some extent is a great blessing from the Lord we have considerable freedom even with all the restrictions that are coming into place at this point we live in a great country uh, and we should keep our eye on the main thing, and that is that the Lord has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And it's our task as pastors to preach the gospel, uh, to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, and be concerned about the political situation, but not overly concerned about it. To worry about it, but don't panic about it.
0: That's, uh, that's very wise counsel, I think, and very timely counsel, particularly with where we are and how Christians are, are temp- where they're tempted to go. Carl, to, to what extent should a, should a Christian be examining the belief system of the candidates to evaluate how Christian they are?
1: I think that's, you know, that's a very difficult question. I mean, a number of things come into my mind, and that is politics is a pretty dirty and pragmatic business. You know, if, if a bill comes before the Senate, and on the one hand it's restricting abortion, but on the other hand it's promoting stem cell research, how does a Christian vote on, 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 on that kind of complexity? So I think the first thing that Christians have to acknowledge is politics is very complicated, and even if we elect orthodox Christians to Congress, they're going to have to, at some points, hold their nose and cast votes in a way that, that we struggle with. Um, it was interesting, Luther's famous statement, sin boldly but you know, believe even more boldly. People forget the context in which he said that. The context in which he said that was, he's advising Philip Melanchthon on reforms in Wittenberg and Melanchthon, during Luther's absence, Melanchthon's holding back because he can't do the reforms perfectly. And any reform he brings in at that point to the liturgy or the service is going to be compromised in some way. And Luther essentially is saying to him there, look, I know, but you've got to do the right thing. And if you can get halfway, that's better than where we are now. So do something that is not fully righteous
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, believe, and believe that God will forgive you for the inadequacy of
0: it. Theology of compromise.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that applies to politics to, to some extent. Um, to me, I'm not so interested in the, in the, the Christian bill I can't vote in the States, by the way. You'll be relieved to know. I'm just a green card holder. <laughs> but if I, if I could vote, there would be certain issues that I would be scrutinizing the, uh, the candidates on. Abortion, freedom of religion, um, stem cell research. Uh, and then I would go down. To, there'd be other issues that would be, be of interest to me. Um, but I would be, in any given electoral in any in any given constituency i'd be looking to vote for the person that i thought would come closest to reflecting uh, a a godly view of the world i would not be looking for perfection because you know even if john piper himself or Tim Keller was standing for uh, election, which they shouldn't be as ministers of the gospel, but let's say they were. Even if somebody who was fully on board with, with thoroughly orthodox theology was standing for election, I'd understand that when they cast their votes, they're going to have to be compromises. Politics and worldviews are subtle and complicated. Voting is not. It's a yes or no. And, and-, and the movement between the one to the other involves a set of compromises.
0: And their Christian convictions doesn't necessarily imply competence, and uh, I I don't know if this statement if Luther actually made the statement. You'd probably be able to tell us, but I think about that that a quote that's assigned to him where he said, "I'd rather be ruled by a competent Turk," um, as 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 a kind of clarification that though, though the belief system might be important. Um, you know, there's got to be a fundamental competence in in ruling.
1: Yeah, I've never actually found that in Luther. It's often quoted. It's certainly the kind of thing he could have said. But uh, I think that the point there is an important one, and that is there's a certain level of competence that one has to expect from princes or magistrates or whoever's governing, um, which may not map exactly to their theological competence.
0: Well, we'll just, we'll ascribe it to some smart guy in the future then. (laughs) <laughs> Carl, thanks so much for your uh, for your insightful answers. And, and more importantly, just, you know, when I was reading your bio and thinking about it, just all the work that you are doing to serve the next generation of pastors and and church planters. And thanks for being with us.
1: Hey, it's been a pleasure, Dave. Good to make contact with you again.
0: Folks, this has been the Am I Called podcast. And uh, if you're interested in more information or Tons of free stuff on leadership, calling, preaching, as well as other podcasts with uh, Zach Eswine or Randy Alcorn, Paul Tripp, other folks. Um, Go to amicalled.com and just enjoy what's there to serve you. This is your host, Dave Harvey. Have a great day.